0: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynica Podcast coming to you today from Duke University at the Duke China US Summit 2020. And it's great to be recording a live show just down the street from my house. Hello, Duke. The Cynica Podcast is produced in proud partnership with SUPChina. If you are not already subscribing to SUPChina, you are missing out on the best English language source for daily news about China. Our daily email newsletter is just chock full of important news, uh, links to the original writing and videos and other great podcasts on our site. So do become a SUP China Access subscriber. And treat yourself to a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today on Seneca, I am delighted to be joined by Ambassador Craig Allen, who is president of the U.S.-China Business Council. Craig has had a long-storied career in the Department of Commerce. He was regaling me with some great stories last night. I wonder if any of them are appropriate for sharing today. But uh, (laughs) uh, many postings around Asia, including in mainland China, in Taiwan, in Japan, and Brunei, where he served as ambassador before being named to the presidency of the U.S.-China Business Council. Uh, Craig Allen, welcome back to Seneca. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you so much, Kaiser. Great to be here.
0: So um, let's make the best of it today, because I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to gather in large groups like this. So, Craig, we saw markets really take a beating this week here in the U.S., and it's pretty clear that this bearish sentiment reflects real concerns about the the impact of COVID-19, uh, the epidemic which has walloped China. As head of the U.S. CBC, uh, you are really well positioned, of course, to give us a sense of how American businesses with exposure to China and really what American businesses don't have some exposure to China, uh, your constituents really how are they being impacted? What are you hearing from them about their their, their biggest concerns right now?
1: Uh, terrific. Thank you, Kaiser. So the first thing to note is that stock markets are down about 12%. So we're in correction territory over the course of this last week. So indeed, the markets have caught up with what could be considered a global pandemic. I think looking at the ground in China, how are American, not only American, but all companies dealing with the challenge, there are three things, uh, uh, four things that I would like to highlight. First, uh, for those companies that want to reopen and really get, get back to working again. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of forms that have to be filled out. Employees have to have their temperature taken every day. There's reports back and forth. So it's very difficult. Um, We had one company report that uh, the local government ordered them back to work, but the provincial government ordered them to close down. Hmm. So it's difficult to be legal when you're receiving contradictory information or uh, orders. The second problem that companies have is with regard to personnel. A lot of personnel have not yet returned. Some personnel are stuck in Hubei. So many companies are not able to operate fully because they are lacking key personnel. Foreigners who are not in China currently are going to be quarantined when they come back for two weeks, so they are not coming back. Many companies don't have some of their senior engineering or other talent. Right. A third problem uh, would be on supply chain. So a lot of companies are not able to receive parts and inputs. Uh, The warehouses are closed. A truck uh, coming uh, from one province to another will have its driver quarantined at the border and therefore are not able to receive their goods perhaps most importantly demand is down so for almost all companies uh, they're seeing a drop off a severe drop off uh, in sales and it uh, doesn't matter almost doesn't matter what industry uh you're in demand is down confidence is down business is down and their profits are therefore profits uh are uh affected I would say that in most of China, what I'm hearing is that things are getting back to normal, but that's tentative, uh, and it remains to be seen if that'll be sustained.
0: You said that it doesn't really matter what industry you're in, things are down. What specific industries, though, or sectors, or even individual companies are hardest hit by by this so far, especially U.S. companies? I mean, is it ones that are reliant on, say, electronic supply chains from China? Uh, Who's really feeling the pinch worst right now?
1: So that's an evolving question. Uh, But uh, the most hard hit would be travel and tourism, uh, also franchise. Uh, Most retail establishments have been closed, and uh, so without any orders whatsoever, I would say, um, also regionally, there's a great deal of variation. So up in Heilongjiang, uh, for example, or Kunming, uh, it is probably business as usual. Uh, but, uh, in Hangzhou, in Wenzhou, and in, in, uh, obviously in Wuhan, uh, things are much more difficult. Um, The electronics industry, the automotive industry, which both have really long supply chains, have been deeply affected. And you saw that immediately uh, in Korea and Japan. And we might see that more uh, in in the near future here in the United States, simply because our supply chains are longer and the inventory pipelines uh, had been filled. Uh, But that may uh, be happening here. Uh, So electronics and automotive have been particularly badly hurt, uh, in addition to the travel services and consumer services industries.
0: Yes. I'm certainly not the first person to think this thought, but it it strikes me that uh, the, let's call it a pandemic now, the pandemic has served as something of a, a preview or maybe even a dry run for Decoupling what 's been called decoupling or deglobalization, even if you want to go further, uh, and it 's a pretty grim picture. Uh, is anyone being now persuaded of of the folly of pursuing that path, just having seen what it can actually do?
1: Well, I think that decoupling is a poorly defined concept. In Washington, most people would look at this, I hope anyway, only in terms of the most national security intensive areas, be that telecom or or weapons. But decoupling to some is reducing the amount of interdependence and synergy and cooperation uh, between uh, the two countries. And indeed, uh, coronavirus uh, does challenge us, and it does challenge companies uh, that are heavily invested in China. However, at the same time, uh, I don't think that this uh, hopefully short-term problem should uh, make us myopic about the fact that China will represent 30% of global growth over the next 10 years, and that uh, an American company, if they wish to be a global leader, really has to be a leader in China, has to be one of the top two or three companies in China if they are to be a global leader. Uh, China uh, and the region uh, will produce as much as 60% of global growth over the next 10, 15 years. And so nobody is leaving uh, China. And to the extent that decoupling is being followed, we should really stick to national security intensive areas and apply WTO and, and enjoy the benefits of integration and, and synergy, cooperation, interdependence, uh, and comparative advantage uh, between the two countries as much as possible in the, abs- in the absence of a urgent uh, national security. Security concern,
0: now, uh, Craig. I know that you and and the, the council have been looking into what the actual costs are. Trying to sort of put some numbers around, so I am trying to quantify the actual costs of decoupling. Now, obviously, uh, that depends very much on how you define decoupling, but just in the narrow sense that you've defined it—in other words, uh, focused on national security sensitive sectors like telecommunications—are uh, you able to zero in right now? Are you able to, to give us at least a maybe a qualitative picture of what the costs have been.
1: Well, let me look. uh, Or will be. Let me start out with sort of decoupling as it's currently defined by uh, regulatory practice and then move on to the tech area. I think uh, when you just look at uh, what's happened over the last two years, U.S. exports to China are down 17% in comparison to a 20% increase in European and uh, Japanese exports to China. So we really uh, uh, have taken a big hit uh, in our exports. I would say uh, equally important uh, for American employment and American welfare is Chinese investment in the United States is down some eighty uh, percent, and that's an enormous number. Like in, in Arkansas alone, uh, I know of three Chinese investment projects that are stopped cold, and each one of those would employ hundreds, if not more, citizens of Arkansas, one of the poorest states in the union. So on no, the That fall off, though, that isn't entirely attributable to the trade war.
0: Now, that was already underway before because in 2016 we saw such an uptick, a huge and frankly very irresponsible uptick in in the amount of outbound investment from big Chinese companies like, you know, Anbang and and like Fosun and and, – Right. So. I would
1: agree that there are multiple factors, uh, both on in Beijing and in Washington, that are that are uh, at play here. But these are uh, the effects of decoupling. And I, actually, when you look at the investment side, one could argue it's more important than the trade side. In that, if we are to reduce the trade imbalance between China and the United States, one efficient way to do that, history shows us, is through increased. Chinese investment in the United States. And if you decrease the investments coming into the United States, employing Americans, then those exports are going to continue to grow. The exports will not be replaced by imports, and thereby you might be setting up a longer term situation of uh, economic imbalance and conflict. I would note on the decoupling side that education has done relatively well. Mm -hmm. Uh, The number of applications coming into American schools remains strong. Tourism, however, has taken a hit of about four or 5% last year. So put that all together, and the opportunities cost of uh, decoupling is high. That said, uh, we have a 3.5% unemployment rate. We are, have a budget deficit of about 4%. So the budget deficit is drowning out. The fiscal stimulus is drowning out uh, the impact of this. But over the longer term, our lack of robust integration with Chinese growth will have an impact on U.S. economic growth as well.
0: Absolutely. So the U.S. business community for a very long time has served as a kind of ballast, right, uh, in the U.S.-China relationship. No matter how choppy the waters get, the vessel has not capsized in large part because whenever it threatens to do so, the U.S. business community has rallied. Uh, not so much in recent years. We heard uh in in the years leading up to the Trump presidency louder uh, and and more vocal complaints from a wider and wider swath of that community uh, i think before we can suggest well i mean i think neither of us makes any secret about where we stand on on this issue on well, that we oppose this this sort of uh, heedless decoupling and that we do encourage engagement but uh there were problems what went wrong Having talked to so many people in your constituents, what did they tell you? What were their chief concerns and what should we make a priority to address? Is it intellectual property theft? Is it, uh, forced technology transfers? Is it lack of market access? Is it, you know, China's failure to live up to certain WTO commitments and open certain sectors, uh, for U.S. participation? What were the priority issues for them?
1: Well, before, uh, talking about what went wrong, I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of things went right. Um, As many as 2.4 million Americans are employed in US relations, economic relations with China. Uh, Since WTO, US exports uh, to China increased 500%, and agricultural exports increased 1000%. So a lot has gone right. But your observation that American companies are less enthusiastic to publicly defend engagement is, I think, right on target and important to note. So what went wrong? I think on both sides that there it's important to reflect. Firstly, China has changed. The China that we knew immediately after the WTO 20 years ago is not the China that we face today. And indeed, I would say a turning point was the great financial recession of 2009, at which point Wang Qishan, uh, currently the vice president, uh, told at that time Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson that, Hank, we used to look at you as our teacher, and now we realize that we have no more to learn. And from that time, China began to diverge uh, from the global economic norms and began to take less seriously its WTO commitments. So we would win a case in the WTO and China would uh, decline uh, to actually implement the judgment. Um, we find this in economic terms. I think that uh, we find it in geopolitical terms. Uh, and perhaps looking even at the Chinese democracy domestic situation, we find a divergence uh, from global norms rather than a convergence with. So the fundamental fact is that indeed uh, China has changed uh, and American companies uh, who had been doing business in uh, China are finding it more and more uh, difficult in many cases to do so. I would say that the challenges to American companies are severe. And some of those are market challenges, and others are government-coordinated challenges. I'm talking um, about
0: sort of data transfer, data localization requirements, the national security law, the national intelligence law, things like this? Well, uh, some,
1: some of those that you mentioned are coordinated or uh, adjudicated within the WTO, and others are not. Right. And I think that it's important to make a distinction between the two. Because it is true that the implementation of the WTO has not been uh, fulsome. And I would submit as uh, primary evidence a Made in China 2025 uh, plan, which I would argue is a WTO non-compliant across many chapters. Uh, but in addition to that, you have uh, a good number of disciplines that are not covered under the WTO. For example, uh, cyber uh, and data and digital and antitrust law are not covered in the WTO. And as they have not been covered under the WTO, American companies have found challenges there that cannot be addressed in WTO language. And uh, therefore, there has been no redress. And we find the uh, probability of redress difficult. Now, these problems are concentrated not uh, so much in the consumer goods area, but rather in the areas dominated by Chinese state-owned enterprises and in high technology. So consumer goods, generally things are very fine. Industrials and chemicals and petrochemicals, that's it's very fine. Uh, food is quite good, lots of room for growth. Uh, then you get into heavily regulated services, more difficult. And then you get into high tech, yet more difficult.
0: Right. Last night, uh, over dinner, you you shared a couple of interesting statistics with me from survey research that you've done with your constituents. I, I, should I call them your constituents? Yeah, sure, of course. Members. Your, your members, your members. I think that's the terminology you use. Uh And it, it turns out that many of them, while maybe not vocally contrite about having supported uh, a, a, a firmer stance, are have, have expressed a bit of regret. They think things have gone too far. Can you share those numbers with us?
1: So. On January 16th, the United States and China signed a phase one agreement bringing a pause to the US-China trade uh, conflict and beginning a new stage. So we did a survey of our members as to their thoughts on, was this a good thing or a bad thing? How, do, how does it work for you? And what we learned was that 80% of our members uh, thought that this was a good thing. Hmm. And uh, that is a good, strong affirmation uh, of the Trump administration's uh, policies and strategies, uh, at least in uh, the trade area. However, only 19% of our members thought that it was worth the cost. In other words, there is a very high cost that we have paid for the phase one agreement, and that that cost continues to be paid. And let me try and articulate that. Firstly, the tariffs remain and uh, I think all uh, businesses both on the Chinese side and on the American side would love to get rid of those tariffs, but they remain. so that that is an ongoing cost. Secondly, the decline that we saw of 17, 18 percent in American exports has been replaced by Europeans and Japanese, and it's going to be difficult to get those back uh, uh, after you change a, a supplier. You don't necessarily go back to your former supplier, especially if there is uncertainty hanging over that 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 transaction. I think all of our members also are very respectful of uh, the force uh, of nationalism in China and very concerned that this not become a broader uh, type of, if you will, PR battle that American companies have to face. There was a Brunswick survey uh, about five, six months ago that suggested more than 50% of Chinese consumers would be Reluctant to purchase American brands. Now, let's just think about that. 50% of 20% of the world's population, that's 11% of the world's population reluctant to purchase Chinese uh, American brands. So that's something that we're sensitive to, that we wish to be careful about. Well, the Chinese people are our friends. We want to sell to them. We want to work with them. We want to have cognitive empathy with them. Uh, They're good consumers, a big middle class, and this is a middle class that, that uh, is a valued customer and which we want to keep uh, over the longer term. So, yes, uh, there are concerns and we're working hard uh, to try and address those concerns.
0: So what do you think it's going to take now to, to, to bring your membership back squarely into the camp of or back to their role as ballast? Or do you think I mean I, it sounds from what you've just said like there's still a, a residual role they're playing in that Oh uh, definitely. Uh, yes, you we, said the sensitivity to nationalism absolutely. And so forth.
1: We want predictability and sustainability and long-term perspective. So I think that the administration and the Chinese deserve a lot of credit for coming out with a strong uh, phase one agreement that is particularly effective in the intellectual property rights, uh, the financial services, and the agricultural area. I think that that is productive the second phase of these negotiations however are going to be much more difficult and they include the parts of the economy where the communist party of china and the government of china really play an outsized role in in management and um, uh, control. Uh, and that would include uh, subsidies. Uh, this is a sensitive subject in any country. And therefore, I think that we uh, need to approach this soberly and with caution. Similarly, the role of state-owned enterprises in the Chinese economy is very important uh, to gl- the global t- economic and trading system, but it's also very sensitive in China. We have to remember state-owned enterprises played an important role in the Han dynasty, uh, if you were to consider salt. uh, And iron, right. (laughs) Uh, and, and, And iron. The third topic, however... Uh, might be the most difficult, uh, 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 the third topic of the phase two negotiations, and that would be technology policy. And here, this is very difficult. Xi Jinping has clearly articulated a uh, economic development model that preferences innovation and technology. Uh, and the issue is, uh, can that be done in WTO compatible manner? And can it be done in a manner that actually benefits the global technology uh, and innovation ecosystem rather than drains away from the global innovation ecosystem? And I think that that is a more difficult question.
0: And it's difficult in part because, well, the entire US-China relationship is being increasingly framed, at least within the beltway, in terms of national security. And because technology is such an important piece of that, naturally, the entire US-China relationship now is, is the dual lenses of nat- national security and technology. Recently at the Munich uh, Security Summit, we had both uh, you know, prominent people on both sides of the aisle, Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, and Nancy Pelosi, who really has never sort of lacked for bona fides in, in terms of her hawkishness on China. But both of them were, were very uh, vocal about uh, their opposition to Huawei. Nancy Pelosi said something about uh, choosing Huawei is choosing authoritarianism over, over democracy, right? Now, uh, let's, let's dig in a little bit about, on, on, on this issue. Um, one thing that I've noticed, I, I have a, a sort of theory that, uh, American technology companies, uh, because they had enjoyed so much prominence in, in the beginning, really, um, just, you know, a, a dozen years ago or so, they began to have a, a larger sort of share of voice within your membership and membership of, of, of the, uh, of AmCham and other, other industry organizations. And their complaints were, Really sort of taken quite seriously. Uh, now though, uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm seeing a real schism in, within the tech community with, with some of them. I, Brad Smith recently has given a lot of speeches about, uh, really resisting decoupling and engaging China. While on the other hand, we've had Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress and, Talking about uh, the dangers of TikTok and how, if you overregulate us, we're ceding the field basically to the evil Chinese. Uh, where is Silicon Valley in in this? Where do they stand? Which side are they on?
1: So uh, I would. Uh, resist answering the question in that form, in that uh, I think that we're dealing with uh, two governments uh, that are changing their technology policies uh, at the same time. So where would we be in a positive sense is to try to uh, encourage the Chinese government uh, to take steps uh, that that they have committed to within the WTO vis-a-vis intellectual property, rights or forced technology transfer or standards or state-owned enterprises to create a a level playing field for American companies. And I think that that work uh, is ongoing and it is critically important. And that is why the phase two negotiation, which includes subsidies and state-owned enterprises and technology policy, and all of those are wrapped up together, are so important. And we want China to play a positive role in the global innovation ecosystem. So that said, Made in China 2025 in specific, but not only that, lit a lot of light bulbs uh, in Washington. And the very clear articulation in that plan of a goal for Chinese companies to dominate uh, the industries of the future set off a reaction, not only in Washington, but also in Brussels, in Tokyo, in in Seoul, and around the world. And thus, we have seen a tightening of export controls uh, in particular Uh, and specifically around the industries nominated or put forward in the Made in China China 2025. Mm -hmm. But similarly, we've seen an increase in investment controls in the United States and Europe, uh, also around those same industries. And I think while it's different, it's also closely related, and that is controls on academic and corporate research uh, that Dr. Simon uh, mentioned earlier today. And all of these are a part and parcel of concerns about uh, the unethical or illegal acquisition of technology and uh, a concern that there's not a level playing field in China. So the best way to address that is to get a level playing field in China I, uh, with the help of both carrots, such as increased cooperation in technology, but also with sticks, and they would include the export controls, investment controls, and certainly counterintelligence at universities and in academia. We want... To collaborate with uh, Chinese institutions on an equal, fair, transparent basis, and we want to grow together. And I think that that hope, that wish, that that remains very strong. In on the academic side, the Chinese universities are receiving a great deal of funding, and American academics wish to cooperate with uh, Chinese academics. On the business side, we recognize that Shenzhen and Hangzhou and Zhongguancun are engines of innovation. And we want to be a part of that. We want to collaborate with them. But the rules of the road are not clearly articulated. And even more important than that, the way to enforce those same rules of the road remains unclear
0: alas the sticks the mere presence or mention of them tend to uh, occlude the uh the carrots when you're talking to any any counterparty but um uh, this is something that i've asked a lot of my guests recently and i think it's 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 a question that it's been very much on my mind uh as much as i object to a lot of what the trump administration has done we can't but admit that uh all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to be able to put this thing back together as it was. Is this an opportunity to really sort of build something new, maybe more enduring, maybe something more equitable to both parties? Uh and if so, are we are are, are we on the right track to doing that?
1: I th- I think that the answer to that question is unclear, but the largest factor here is policy decisions to be made in Beijing as to whether or not Beijing wishes to fully implement its uh, WTO commitments in the areas of, that we're talking about here, be it subsidies or state enterprises, and whether or not we could move forward uh, bilaterally or trilaterally or plurilaterally with new uh, rules within the WTO context or uh, a different uh, context. Let us be honest that the WTO regulations on subsidies are not as clear as we would like. And the WTO regulations on uh, digital, uh, have, uh, were not written. Right. And therefore, we need clearer rules of the road that allow us to cooperate and compete effectively. Uh, I understand Duke has a lot of really bright students and, and this is a wonderful area to work on because a lot of work needs to be done on this. So I would say currently that the trend lines are conflicted. The phase one agreement uh, suggests that we are making progress, but the phase one agreement is not a complete answer to the question that you pose. And the prospects of a phase two agreement, which I think if it was completed and presented, would give you a good answer, but the prospects there are longer term.
0: Well, the phase two agreement, uh, I mean, everything difficult has been piled into that, has been just sort of kicked down the road. I mean, it's exponentially more difficult than the things that were hammered out in phase one. And even in the relatively easy phase one, uh, there were some massive holes. And we were talking about this last night. I don't know how candid you can be about this, but you have some real problems with the resolution mechanisms.
1: Well, I think that the phase one agreement includes a number of very novel uh, chapters. and uh, <laughs> That's a the,
0: euphemism, by the way, folks, novel. <laughs> uh,
1: the uh, enforcement mechanism is novel because this is a two-party agreement, and it's very unclear how companies will be using the enforcement mechanism and how effective it will be. I will s- happily say that another area of concern of many companies is that the quantitative targets that have been agreed to By the two countries are extremely ambitious, even in a rapidly growing Chinese economy. And currently, the Chinese economy is uh, is not growing so rapidly, not growing so rapidly. So it's going to be yet more difficult. So how are we going to meet these commitments? Both sides, as recently as last week, reiterated that we will, we are committed to a phase one implementation, which I'm very happy to hear. So I think that as always in U.S.-China relationship, we're dealing with uh, dilemmas and paradoxes and contradictions and, and problems that we're going to have to manage uh, through. And yeah, but, you know, as you know from years as a diplomat,
0: execution on the actual substance of an agreement is not always as important as the attitudinal, the sort of
1: atmospherics of it, the, the, uh, right? Well, I would agree with that uh, completely. And uh, w- w- The phase one agreement is a two-year agreement. And I think that all business people are not limited by a two-year horizon, and rather we're concerned about the longer term. What we want is a long-term sustainable foundation upon which we could build a business and and better integrate our companies and our uh, economies in a fair, transparent, uh, and reciprocal manner. We're a long way from that, Kaiser, but that is a worthy objective. And I think that it's not only U.S.-China that we need to be concerned about. China moving either through RCEP or Belt and Road is playing a larger and larger role in the rest of the rapidly growing parts of the developing world, particularly Southeast Asia. And we want to be there and we do not want to be precluded from those markets. So this is not only a bilateral, rather, we've got to look at the chessboard as at least a three-level bilateral, yes, but also regional, through APEC or ASEAN or the uh, other regional institutions but at the same time, uh, multilaterally through the WTO. And uh, this problem cannot be solved bilaterally. That's like right. climate change cannot be solved bilaterally. Um, so, this chessboard uh, is complex, and we need to work all levels of the chessboard simultaneously.
0: One level that I'd like to talk about is uh, the, at the local level here in the United States. You're out there as part of your job. I mean, you've been at the USCBs even now for 18 months, and it's yep. been 18 difficult months. Uh, out there, talking to people in in business outside of the Beltway, especially to talking to uh, people in government at the state level, at the municipal level. Uh, I'm curious what you're hearing from them, and also what are you saying to them that that seems really to to be to resonate to work. It's it's not the same thing you're going to be saying at, in an audience like this, a specialist audience. But when we're all out there, those of us who are sort of on your side, on our side of this. What are some of the the things that really resonate?
1: Well, um, in talking to any mayor or any governor or um, World Affairs Council, uh, they're interested in jobs. Uh, Secondarily, they're interested in jobs, and their third uh, uh, interest is jobs And, and investment. And so there's a great deal of interest uh, in Chinese investment in the United States and a great deal of interest also uh, in exporting more uh, to uh, China uh primarily at the local level what i see uh is a sustained interest in how can you help us get a chinese factory here uh we need uh, uh financing uh for a new uh water uh system uh, uh and uh i think that 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 those questions are useful and important. And again, uh, I uh, look back uh, at uh, our relationship with Japan and Korea previously, whereby they substituted exports to the United States with investment in the United States. And therefore, uh, I think uh, there is a lot of potential Chinese investment out there that is looking for a home in the United States, and a lot of governors and mayors uh, who would welcome uh, that uh, presence in their economy and the increased uh, interchange between their localities and China. So uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, this is largely an economic uh, question, not exclusively, uh, but that's what local community leaders and that's what governors are interested in. And I think that there's a huge potential there to satisfy those interests with the right policies uh, in place. I'm not suggesting that we have those right policies in place right now, but I think that looking at the cost and benefits of what we're doing at the grassroots is a useful and important exercise.
0: Yeah, I think that's very helpful and uh, a very good way of framing it. Jobs, jobs, and jobs. Um, I want to bring this back to where we really started, talking about COVID-19, about the, the burgeoning pandemic right now. Uh, just the other night, President Trump made this sort of impromptu short uh, press conference, I guess you, you could sort of call it a press conference, uh, in which he anointed Vice President Mike Pence as sort of the, um, I was surprised it wasn't Jared Kushner. I mean, wasn't Jared Kushner like in charge of everything, but uh, Vice President Pence is to be in charge of this. But it struck me that it seems that he's learning the wrong lessons from China's handling of the, of the coronavirus. I think there were a lot of people who would probably agree that uh, China has done many things right, but that in the early stages, uh, there was a, a lot of uh, of of a lack of transparency a lot of deliberate obfuscation a lot of uh, of secrecy a lot of cover your ass now what what about uh I mean, it, it seems like we're doing the same thing now all messaging has to go uh not directly from the cdc to the to the the people but through pence's office now uh what do you what do you make of Amer- america's handling of this so far
1: Well, I think that we need to recognize that this is a novel virus and and we really don't uh, understand the complexity of the situation that we're in. So Sun Tzu said, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you'll win a hundred battles. Well, we don't know the enemy uh, here. This is a new uh, virus. And so uh, a lot of mistakes have been made. But um, I, I would just note that, uh, the Chinese have, uh, given us time, uh, to prepare and that every state and every city and every hospital and every school system in America is talking about this now. And I'm just hopeful that uh, we have uh, the wisdom uh, to be able to control this uh, new enemy uh, in a robust and effective manner. And uh, I would not, um, uh, I'd, I'd really... Caution against Schadenfreude, and Freud, uh, uh, and recognize our own, own vulnerabilities here. So err on the side of caution and take every uh, action necessary. So I think that the Trump administration actually reacted pretty quickly, um, terribly impressed uh, by the State Department's ability and uh, the Chinese support uh, to get four airplanes into Wuhan to evacuate Americans. That was difficult, sensitive, important, and well done. I'm also very impressed uh, by the government's, uh, if you will, uh, uh, care at the borders um, and uh, trying to uh, minimize uh, the, the import, if you will, uh, of this virus. And I think that both of those uh, precautionary measures were very well done. This is uh, a challenge. Uh, It will be a challenge for us for sure. Let us hope uh, that by working with uh, Chinese colleagues uh, in Wuhan, in Hubei, and elsewhere, we're able to collectively come up with uh, a vaccine or a cure that preserves life. This is an opportunity for robust U.S.-China cooperation for the benefit of both of our peoples. Let us seize it.
0: Uh, There was something I think it it was implicit in so much of the criticism about China's handling of this that basically said uh, you're failing because of something that's inherent to the Chinese polity, to the party, to authoritarianism itself. Uh, So I think China will not be able to resist a little bit of its own shot in pointing out uh, when countries outside of China will. I, I really I pray that they will resist that. Unfortunately, irresistible temptation, but I think we're going to see a lot of very uh, ugly headlines in, in Chinese state media. And that's, that's, um, something I, I hope we don't all share in, in, in this room. Uh, I can poke fun of Trump all I want, but I, I think that that would be a, a, a real mistake. Anyway, uh, Ambassador Craig Allen, what a pleasure it was to to have you here uh, and to, to join us here in North Carolina. I wish you could stay longer. I could take you out for some, some barbecue and whatnot. Uh, but let's go on to recommendations. First, I do need to do a quick word from our sponsor. If you're looking for a study abroad program that will take your Chinese language skills to the next level, Study abroad with CET. CET Academic Programs, which began in Beijing in 1982, has trained a generation of China watchers. Since CET began sending students to China in the early 80s, more than 10,000 students have gone to China through CET. You can find CET alumni working in just about any field in China and elsewhere, many of whom occupy positions of influence in U.S.-China relations in academia, journalism, business, tech, and the arts. With programs for college, high school, and gap year students in seven cities, CET offers options for every student and language level. Intern in Shanghai or Taipei, study intensive Chinese language in Beijing, Harbin or Kunming, or spend a year in Beijing. You can even send your high schooler to Shanghai for the summer or on a semester-long program to Dali in Yunnan summer and fall 2020 programs are now accepting applications for more information visit cetacademicprograms.com slash Seneca <sighs> on to recommendations um, Craig what do you have for us uh, well, so it looks like you have a fascinating book here
1: uh, Kaiser, if you allow me, I'd have two. Oh, really? uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the uh, – my uh, flight uh, here was delayed by about three hours, so I finished the wonderful new book by Branko Milanovic uh, called Capitalism, comma, Alone, Capitalism Alone, and the basic – thesis of the book is that there are various forms of capitalism around the world and that the Chinese system is a form of political capitalism competing with a meritocratic form uh, in the United States. Both have their strengths, both have their weaknesses. It's unclear uh, which is the better, depends on your perspective. Anyway, I thought that comparative study of economic systems was really fantastic. So I uh, could strongly recommend the Milanovic book for those interested in kind of looking at uh, th- this issue from a systems level. This, my second recommendation would be a publication free on the internet uh, published by Business Europe called uh, The EU and China, addressing the systemic challenge. And it's on business Europe's website uh, for free. And I really thought this was, this is also very recent, only published a month or two ago, but I thought it was really useful for us because it presents a a really very detailed, fine analysis of China's economic systems and the WTO inconsistencies there from a non-American perspective. So they use different language and a different approach and very sophisticated analysis, which I think is useful for any student here looking to write a term paper uh, and for people like me. The other interesting thing about the European approach uh, to China is that they share all of the same economic problems, but they do not share the same concerns over national security right. and regional uh, tensions. And therefore, they are able to bring a different perspective to the same problems. And I always love a different perspective to my problem uh, that allows me to do a better job uh, at trying to address uh, that problem. And this book provides a very sophisticated, refined, and useful approach to many of the problems that U.S. businesses also face.
0: It would be nice to be able to look at this set of problems without that damned filter of, of national security constantly before your eyes. Uh, great. Um, I will check that out for sure. Um, my recommendation for this week is a book that, uh, I've, I've, I'm about to finish. It's just fantastic. I, I'm gonna leave this conference and, and go curl up somewhere and finish it right away. Uh, it's by a Dutch Lebanese journalist named Kim Gattas, G-H-A-T-A-S, uh, who was with the BBC and she's now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, the book is called Black Wave. Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. Uh, it's fantastic. It starts with this remarkable the year, 1979, which I don't know how many of you know this, but this was not only the year of the Iranian revolution, but also the year of the uh, the takeover for, for weeks on end by uh, Wahhabist radicals of the, the great mosque in, in, in Mecca. And it was also the year of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And she ties all these things together. Uh, it's masterfully told. She, she's it's she's a fantastically good writer. The cast of characters she introduces are not just that familiar cast of, of Islamic radicals, you know, the Saeed Kutban and so forth, but also a lot of poets and philosophers and people in humanities. Uh, the tragedy that befalls, I guess, her city of her birth, Beirut, uh, it's it's a phenomenally good book. I highly recommend it. Black Wave. Check check it out. Uh, and with that, Ambassador Craig Allen. It was just a wonderful thing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please, a uh, uh, round of applause for Ambassador Craig Allen. The Seneca Podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email. Really, do at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at @subchina_news, China and make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network, which is growing um, and watch this space for announcements for new network shows, which are coming soon. Thanks very much for listening. We will see you next week and take care.